Hello everyone, welcome back to the Atomic Hobo, I'm Julie McDowell and this week we're going to look at prisons in nuclear war. Now prisons uh, created a bit of a headache for war planners because they tend to be very strong and fortified, secure buildings and that's something of course that most of us would crave in the run up to a nuclear war. We all know what the government advice was for British citizens in the approach to nuclear attack. It was to hide under your kitchen table or to or to unscrew a door and prop it against the wall. So there wasn't much protection at all. So why should the criminals get to stay nice and safe, protected behind those thick Victorian stone walls? And of course, in prison, I don't want to sound like... Um, Alan Partridge here, but in prison, arguably, you get your own beds, you get your meals prepared for you, whereas after a nuclear attack, millions would be homeless and starving. So in a nuclear war, prison stops being a punishment, and you could say it even becomes desirable. Not only does prison become desirable, but it also becomes useless. You can no longer use it as a valid punishment in a post-nuclear world, because people would be falling over themselves to be jailed because, all of a sudden, prison has come to mean shelter and food and a bed behind lovely thick protective walls. And in a post-nuclear world, prison would become a terrible drain on resources. You would have thousands of men and women behind bars, all requiring care and food, uh, needing to be guarded. Well, you have millions of others across the country who need the very same. So could a government justify sparing resources for those prisoners? But if they don't, then what's the alternative? To just let them all get out of jail free? Well, yes, that was indeed the plan. So let's take a look at it. Now, not everyone would be set free. The plan was to substantially clear the prisons, but with the following exceptions. Long-term prisoners who still had more than 12 months to serve, they would be kept in prison, as would those who posed a a grave danger to the public if they were released. So not everyone is getting out. Um, The particularly dangerous, violent ones will be retained, as will those who still have quite a bit to serve on their sentence. So I assume that refers to prisoners serving life or prisoners who've been sentenced for something particularly nasty. So those people... The baddies will be kept in jail, but the rest, yep, free, set free, back into society. Now, of course, it's not as easy as that. It's never a case of simply releasing the prisoner and they go off back home and everything's fine. I assume anyone who works um, in prisons would would say that. There's a a process to go through to try and acclimatise prisoners back into normal society, I suppose. Imagine trying to do that when a nuclear war is just over the horizon and arguably the world is about to end. It's not going to be easy, it's not going to be a case of opening the door and saying okay off you go back home. And that issue was raised at a conference at the Scottish Police College 26th of March 1965 which said quote there would be obvious problems in returning prisoners to normal life. Many would be difficult citizens who were returning to freedom in unusual circumstances which, although they might make organised crime less easy, would make any counteraction by the police more difficult. So I suppose the police, they aren't thinking of the social side, they're not thinking how easy will it be for them to link back up with their families, to find a job. They're thinking, 
what are they going to be up to? These prisoners who've been released, are they going to slip back into their bad old ways? And if so, how are we going to tackle it? We're going to have enough in our plates preparing for nuclear war. There's also the question of where they would go upon their sudden release. The documents don't cover that, but um, it did occur to me, um, when you open the door and let these men out, where do they go? Not everyone uh, is in jail next door to their mum's house. So how are all these released prisoners going to get home? This would be happening, remember, in what's known as the precautionary stage. That's when the government had deemed nuclear war to be imminent. So there would be, I assume, chaos, or at the least, very heavy restrictions. So they couldn't just phone a taxi or hop in a bus to get home. Because, firstly, many of the main roads and motorways in Britain would, by this point, have been cut off to civilian traffic. They would have been designated as essential service routes, open only to the military, the police, the government, etc. And petrol stations would also have been requisitioned so that petrol supplies could be kept for official use. So that all implies that buses and cars won't exactly be at the prisoner's disposal. So unless they can literally walk home, where do they go? The papers I've seen don't cover that. It's a case of clear the prisons, make the space, and then it's every man for himself. How do they get home? Doesn't matter. By that point, they're no longer the government's responsibility, I suppose. If we look at a study at the Scottish Police College in 1965, we can see that the authorities here were looking at the benefits to them. They weren't concerned about how the prisoners get home, how the prisoners acclimatise themselves back into normal society. They were looking at the benefits to themselves and the prisons. Of course, that's their duty. We can't um, criticise them for that. They identified two benefits for clearing the prisons. The first and that's what we touched on at the very beginning of the podcast, is that it creates a lot of free, secure accommodation. This document referred to the Scottish prisons, and it said that um, by substantially clearing them in this way, you create secure accommodation for up to 7,000 people. And by using the enclosed areas of the prisons, uh, the prison grounds, the outhouses, I suppose, you can create accommodation for many thousands more. Also, a second um, benefit is that by clearing the prisons, you free up the prison guards. And in Scotland, for example, that would provide 1,200 disciplined and trained men who could then be put to use in the nuclear emergency. So suddenly you've got lots of redundant prison guards who can be diverted into other work. So clearing the prisons creates two very rich resources. You've got lots of secure, protected space, and you've got lots of highly trained, highly disciplined workers. So, sounds great, doesn't it? At a time when resources are going to be thin, you've suddenly freed up a whole lot, but not everyone was happy with the plan. It was written um, that chief constables across the country had, quote, general misgivings about the prospect of clearing prisons. I'm sure that's a whopping understatement. I bet they had general misgivings. Uh, In fact, the chief constable of what was then City of Glasgow Police wrote to the government to raise his concerns. This was a letter from the 2nd of March 1965 where he said he was most unhappy 
And what his specific concern was, it was the proposal to release prisoners who had less than 12 months to serve. And he was um, worried about this because this includes, quote, dangerous and persistent criminals who would be a real menace if they were liberated at such a time. So he wanted um, the release to be based on the the gravity of the offence and not just the time served. Although the rules did allow for special cases to be given a bit of individual leeway. Any whopping, notorious, horrific criminals who just happened to be nearing the end of the serv- uh, nearing the end of the sentence, someone could step in at that point and say, "No, no, no! I think we can justify keeping him in." So the twelve-month rule, admittedly, was a bit broad, but the Home Office had said there's no time to assess each prisoner individually. In the precautionary stage, there's going to be chaos. There's no time to sit thousands of men down and go through the case notes and assess whether they're fit to be released, what kind of danger they still pose. There was simply no time for that. The precautionary stage was probably going to be weeks, maybe days. It depends, of course, what the international situation was. As we know, there might not even have been time for a precautionary stage to be declared. We all know about the infamous four-minute warning. We might have had nothing but four minutes uh, in which to prepare. So there'd be certainly no time there to sit down with social workers and probation officers and look at each prisoner's record. So there was no choice but to apply a very broad rule, and that was if you've got less than 12 months left in your sentence, you can be released. But it was acknowledged that this broad rule was, quote, bound to release some men of dangerous character whilst retaining some such as defrauding solicitors and homosexuals whose particular form of criminality constitutes no particular danger, but that cannot be helped. So the broad 12-month rule might release some horrific violent murderers whilst retaining people who were in jail for fraud or, of course, homosexuality, which was back in the 60s when this document was written, still a crime. So, very broad rule, but there's no time for any nuance. As the document says, that cannot be helped. So, what happens to the prisoners who are retained in jail? In the Scottish National Archives in Edinburgh, I found proposals to round them all up, uh, gather them all in one prison. And that was suggested to be Peterhead, which was an old Victorian jail. It was only closed down a few years ago, actually. Um, Peterhead was an old Victorian jail on the northeast coast of Scotland and um, I wonder if it's a coincidence that Peterhead had a history of very nasty conditions for the prisoners. According to Wikipedia, it was referred to as Scotland's Gulag, a prison of no hope. So we don't know why they earmarked Peterhead for that proposal. Maybe it was the location because it's quite remote. Maybe it's because it was very sturdy, very Victorian, very secure. Maybe it was because it was particularly nasty. Who knows? But Peterhead was suggested as the location where the remnants would be gathered and kept during the nuclear war. So the nuclear attack is approaching. The precautionary stage has been declared. The prisons have been emptied, apart from the most violent or dangerous men, or the poor little solicitors and gay men who've been sentenced and who just happened to have been mopped up under this very broad 12-month rule. 
They've all been gathered together in, in this case, Peterhead Prison, and they're waiting there to... Well, they're waiting there for the bomb to drop, aren't they? They're waiting there for nuclear war. And think for a moment of the, the poor prison guards who've been given that task to set out nuclear war in an eerie, echoing, deserted prison with the worst criminals waiting for the bomb to drop. And consider also what would happen if the prison was partially destroyed, leaving the guards and some of the prisoners dead, but some survivors still locked up in their cells, helpless. No one's going to come to release them, no one's going to come to feed them or to let them out of their cell. That horrible scenario was actually tackled by Stephen King in his post-apocalyptic novel, The Stand. Now, one final little interesting thing in this whole topic is the role of subversives. Um, In the run-up to nuclear war, the police would have been instructed to round up any potential subversives. We all know that's a common practice in war. Just think of the internment camps during World War II. Anyone who seemed to be a threat to the country or to be working against the country's interests in war would have been um, rounded up in an internment camp. So while they're releasing prisoners across the country, they're also arresting others and creating more prisoners. But if the plan is to substantially clear the jails, then where are these um, subversives or potential subversives going to be held? We don't know, of course, but um, there was a particularly horrible suggestion from Duncan Campbell in his book, his great book, which I recommend to you, War Plan UK, which says, quote, It is not known what internment sites have been pre-selected, and it's tempting to suppose that they may have been located in likely major target areas. Now, that's just a suggestion, of course, but um, it would certainly take care of the problem for the government. You've rounded up a lot of subversives, potential subversives. What the hell do you do with them? Well, if you put them in a camp in a place which is likely to be targeted, then, to be very blunt, the problem is taken care of for you. Now, that's a very horrible thought, but then we're dealing with a very horrible subject. It's very rare that I can bring something light-hearted to this for you. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. And we're not here for the jokes, are we? We're here for the horror. Of course, if you want more horror, then my Twitter account is the place to be. You can find me there at Julie A. McDibble, or you can find me online at uh, juliemcdibble.com, where a lot of my nuclear journalism um, has been archived. You can see it all there. You can feast your eyes on the horror. If you're not on Twitter, you can get me on Facebook. My page is called Nuclear Britain. And there are plenty of photographs there, um, extracts from my archival research. If you want to wallow in some more horror, then again, that's the place to be. And I'll finish by thanking you all very much for listening. And I'll be back next week with another podcast. Bye for now. (laughs) 